Welcome to Leadership Arts Review, a dynamic podcast about the art and science of leadership. Join us as we explore a different leadership book each episode. We will help you navigate all the theories and strategies out there and find the elements that work for you. We will share what we liked, what we learned, and what we recommend. I'm Nitya. I'm Alyssa. I'm Margaret. I'm Kate. Today, we are talking about Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, who was the winner of the Nobel Prize in Economics. Here is a little bit of an intro about the book, the official one you'll see on Amazon and other places. In his groundbreaking tour of the mind's machinery, Kahneman presents us with two systems that drive the way we think. System one is fast, intuitive, and emotional. System two is slower, more deliberative, and more logical. The impact of loss aversion and overconfidence on corporate strategies, the difficulties of predicting what will actually make us happy in the future, the profound effect of cognitive biases on everything from playing the stock market to planning our next vacation. Each of these can be understood only by knowing how the two systems shape our judgments and decisions. Kahneman's ideas have had a profound and widely regarded impact on many fields, including, of course, economics, as well as medicine and politics. Engaging the reader in a lively conversation about how we think, Kahneman reveals where we can and cannot trust our intuition and how we can tap into the benefits of slow thinking. Thinking fast and slow can transform the way you think about thinking. Well, here we go. Let's dive right into it, shall we? More than anything, I think this book calls into question the limits of our own rationality. So given that and all of the various ways in which Kahneman tells us to think about rationality and thinking, how do you feel after having finished the book? Do you feel more in control, more empowered, less so? What is your overall reaction? It's a great question because I would say overall, I feel like I've got a lot of work to do. He points out so many cognitive biases that we have and so many places that we can go wrong. But in terms of feeling empowered, he gives so many answers and solutions that I actually feel more empowered to do something to correct some of these biases and to to put systems in place that allow me to incorporate the fact that I'm making these biases into the way that I operate. I would echo that. I think I feel less in control. However, I feel I have more tools that I can use, some things to just continue learning about the fact that I'm not in control. This book was kind of a huge moving into the suddenly knowing how much we don't know when we talk about kind of levels of competency of, you know, I, I think I'm a, I think I'm a pretty good decision maker. I think I'm a pretty logical person. And then you keep reading and you realize, oh, hmm, okay. So there was kind of this progression of losing competency as I read the book, but knowing coming out of it that there's a lot of information here that can be put to very practical use. Yeah, definitely. Thank you both for sharing that. And in a way, the introspection that I think this has inspired in all of us is very related to the way Kahneman approached his own life and work. He does a lot of thought experiments and poses the same questions to himself as he does to other people. So so given that, I know we, we started to talk about the biases and the self-questioning. So I want to get into that a little bit because the biases, fallacies, illusions make up a good chunk of the book. And these sections are 
are academic in nature in that Kahneman does detail studies and a lot of them really, really fascinating, but they all also have philosophical implications, implications for the workplace. So let's get into that a little bit. Out of, out of all of the ones that he details, what are some of your favorites? Which ones jumped out at you? Which ones feel challenging or surprising? Well, if I can jump in, one of the ones showed up with a client of mine this week in a challenge that they were facing at work. And so it popped to mind immediately. So the bias is the tendency to answer an easier question when we don't feel competent to answer the question that was asked. And we don't always realize that we're answering an easier question. And sometimes it's because we don't have enough information to realize that the question is more difficult than the one that we're answering. And sometimes it's because it's uncomfortable to go into the not knowing of trying to address the question that we don't know the answer to. So the situation in my client's case was an interdepartmental conversation and interdepartmental dependencies. And he took to a meeting with the other department, the problem that they need to jointly solve and the question. And what he brought to me was I came out of that meeting feeling completely unheard. I don't think they're going to be possible to work with. I don't know what I'm going to do because what the other department did was answer the question that they knew they were competent to answer about how they could solve the problem they thought he was talking about. And so in fact, what we did in the coaching session was we worked through the assumptions that he was making about how difficult they were going to be to work with to create a space for him to feel like he could go back into the conversation and go, I can see that from your perspective, this seems like a solution to the problem. And I don't think it's going to address this problem, this problem, and this problem. I think we've got a more complicated question than the one that you answered. Yeah, thank you, Kate. I love that example. It highlights something very fundamental about system one, which is that thriving in unpredictability and chaos and lack of answers is precisely what we're not wired to do. We are wired to find the solution. So in this case, it seems like system one uh, found that related question and, and, and tried to go there. But it sounds like in your coaching, there was this, this push and this guidance towards actually confronting the real question. Yeah. When you ask someone a question and they answer an easier question, it can be really disconcerting because they can come back with confidence. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the psychology of judgment here is just is, is fascinating, right? I mean, decision making, so called jumping to conclusions is very natural and kind of what we what we tend to do. And, and jumping to conclusions is very valuable in simple situations. Yes, absolutely. And something Kahneman says is that these biases, including the one that you just mentioned, Kate, most of the time actually help us in the sense that most of the time we get it right, but we get it right. And that's how we survive, except for the, the complicated situations like like the one you outlined. Very cool. Thanks for that. Um, how, about, how about you, Alyssa? You know, what I got out of this book was a lot of complexity. It just kept sparking my curiosity. And I have to say, I was a little bit jealous of those of you that were rereading this because I uh -huh. felt like that's already what I want to do. Like I got through <laughs> it once and I have a lot of things, you know, a lot of notes and a lot of underline and could tell when it was penetrating in a way of changing my way of looking at things. Of course, that's not something that happens quickly. So now I want to go back and reread. And I think to your question, Nithya, there's a lot in there that can be focused towards behavior change and when people are risk averse and is it about making it less risk averse or is it about making the possibilities more pleasant? You know, there's so many different ways to reframe things, looking at it from an individual perspective of what will work best for one person, as opposed to looking for a one size fits all message. Thinking of things to go back and dig into because there's so much in here and capturing it all is hard. 
he's got the four part model of risk averseness versus risk seeking that feels really important to actually dig into. Sometimes risk aversion is actually um, in a place where there's, if there's a high probability of loss, you have one response. And if there's a low probability of gain, you have one response. And if there's a low probability of loss, but a minimal gain, you have a different response. One of the things that he pointed out in that model was that if there is a certain loss or a probability of not losing that, Mm -hmm. even if you're likely to lose more, there's a high risk behavior that people take that he had not expected to find that explains why people don't settle lawsuits at times when sort of looking at it objectively, you could say you were offered a really great settlement, but you went to court. And from the outside, because we're not the ones who are going to experience the loss if the court judgment goes the wrong way, we look at it rationally, but actually the person in the situation, that feeling of, I don't want to accept this certain loss, which is what the settlement would feel like. So I'm going to go to court, even though it's likely that I'll lose more because I have a chance of getting something. Yeah. I mean, it's just amazing. Whereas, and and just to paint the other side of it, uh, Kate, in, in situations where that, that sure loss, so to speak, is not guaranteed, we're, we're more risk averse. We're more likely to say, well, because maybe literally anything can happen here. Let me play it safe, uh, which which yeah. is which is so fascinating. And there's so much in this that is really great examples of the ways that we emotionally respond consistently as human beings to statistics in ways that our gut instinct has us do the thing that is statistically worse for us. I'm so glad you brought that up because one of the things I uh, wanted to share here, and I think now is a good a time as any, is I listened to an episode of Shankar Vedantam's podcast where he interviews Daniel Kahneman. One of the things Kahneman brings up is, is right in line with what you're saying, Kate, and it's his, his advice and his meditation let's say, on how the world is responding to climate change and the climate change crisis. And he, he gets into it in a lot of detail, but the way he describes it is because the world has to make sense and, and to see the world as chaotic and unpredictable is, is kind of impossible for our mind, we ignore our own ignorance. And, and how that translates for him is he calls climate change this perfect storm of something our minds are not equipped to deal with because it's distant and abstract. And we crave things that, that are immediate and, and a little more predictable and, and concrete. So he contrasts impending climate change with the comet or an asteroid hitting the earth in a week, which he says, you know, in those cases, our minds and our bodies would mobilize and do something. I mean, whether we could actually prevent it or not, we would mobilize pretty effectively. Whereas we're unable to mobilize uh, towards something that is so abstract, even for people who kind of want to mobilize, it's it's hard because it is so abstract. And so we, uh, we, we react emotionally and, and what Kahneman says about that is because we're emotional beings in that way uh, in our system one, social pressure and other things that tap system one more directly would be more effective in mobilizing us for something that is uh, that is so abstract. So, um, so I thought that conversation was was pretty fascinating and uh, and kind of you know leads me to think a lot about what it takes for us to believe something versus not believe something and feel confident about something versus not confident about something. I think that whole discussion 
question is probably what jumped out to me the most um, in his in his very big confidence section. And, you know, when we have a coherence of information and it's easy to process, we're confident. That's probably that illusion is probably what stood out to me the most. The idea that confidence comes from being able to tell a coherent story yes. about what's going on is really, really powerful and something that you can use in so many ways. One is as a negotiating tactic. Um, Let me paint the picture with the facts that I want you to follow to create a coherent story. And I will pull out the interpretation that I would like you to support. And also as a, oh, I'm feeling really confident about this. Maybe I should check in with myself about whether I'm just telling a really good story. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I I want to I want to take us to something related there, which is the interaction between system one and two. Given all of the, the fallacies and illusions that are talked about, um, I, I want to dig into that because we've mentioned here. All right. Well, how do we manage these or counter these biases and such? But it may help for our listeners to understand what what system one and two actually mean. System one is fast, unconscious, automatic. It's more about everyday decisions, and as is revealed in the book, fairly error prone. System Two, on the other hand, is slow. So this is where we get the fast and slow from the title. System two is slow. It's conscious. Uh, It's where complex decisions and judgments are made as opposed to everyday decisions and judgments. It's effortful as opposed to automatic. And therefore, many times reliable when we give it the benefit of that time and that that processing capability. So that's, that's system one and two. And I'd love to hear from each of you around just, you know, your observations on your own system one and two, but also where a good understanding of system one and two can can come through for leaders in their work. I think there's always just that question of balance that you can fall too far into or depend too much on either one. They were talking about, about, you know, taking a break in a meeting and bringing in some more of that play and opportunities for creativity and system one and see how that frees things up. On the other hand, to some of the things both of you were saying, how easy it can be to fall into that and just kind of go with those instincts and not slow down for the more conscious and sometimes the more rational versus emotional. That idea that spending too much time in either one is not going to get you to the right or get you to the best solutions, that it is a balance. Think about the people I know that tend to overanalyze (laughs) and then the people I know that will just go on complete impulse. Uh (laughs) And just a lot of back and forth. I think for me, that's going to be a continuing evolving process of awareness and reflection of which system is kind of in control and is is there a need to adjust at any given time. Yeah. What do you think, Kate? One of the things about this book is it spends a lot of time looking at the ways that system one can go wrong. And one of the things that I actually took away from the introduction to the book and some of the things at the end of the book is system two is energy intensive. And so, yes, there are all these ways that system one can go wrong, but we actually don't have as human beings and as organizations, the ability to always be functioning from system two. And system one, that fast unconscious, is two different things happening at once. One is our instinctive sort of hardwired heuristics and shortcuts and rules of thumb that are sort of in our evolutionary makeup of these are the things that our species has figured out are good enough most of the time. And those are the kinds of things that 
this book goes to so much effort to talk about yeah. how to counteract and the kinds of mistakes that we make. But the other thing that shows up in system one is trained competence mm -hmm. and actual skills. And so one of the things that he talks about later on in the book is what are the things that we can train system one, things that are reliable, things that are predictable, things that really do have patterns enough that we can get them and that we do it better with experience. Our system one learns with experience mm -hmm. rather than conscious information. So if you ever talk about people learning things in their bones, if we've actually been through it and learned it through experience, our system one is much more reliable than the instinct yes. that we would have had before that. And so for me, the huge thing to take away from this is if we can use our system too to train ourselves to undertake the practices that will make us smarter when we're using system one, that's win-win. Yeah, that's such a great way to put it because looking at the pitfalls of system one tells us when we don't have all the information, we jump because we're trying to survive. But how cool could it be if our actual lived experiences inform system one? Yeah, I mean, the three of us all have an interest in learning and development and leadership training. And like the single takeaway from this is we can lecture people on leadership all that we want and they're going to take away something from it, hopefully something useful. But actually the way that people are going to develop is by taking an idea and testing it in their work environments, seeing what the impact is, getting the feedback. Uh, there's a really interesting piece in there about how quick feedback is really useful. So firefighters can get quick feedback yeah. about how things go because they actually go in and they see the impact. This is what happens. We do this, the fire goes out. That's a very quick feedback cycle. And psychologists have a really hard time with feedback because they can get feedback about what happens in an individual session. But if they see a patient and then the patient goes off after six sessions, the psychologist doesn't actually get any feedback at all about mm -hmm. the long-term impact of the work that they did with that patient. So that experience actually doing things, going into the difficult conversations, having the hard negotiation with a piece of this learning as part of what you're thinking is such a powerful way of learning. Yeah, for sure. And I, I'm glad we're, we're talking about this because you know we wouldn't want the takeaway here to be that system one doesn't serve at all. Of course it does and it, and it protects us. And in many cases, it often is that the result of a system one determination and a system two determination are actually the same if we give system one the benefit of a little bit of time. So I'm bringing this up because this concept of delayed intuition. Kahneman doesn't say that our intuition is always wrong, but delayed intuition and that system two generated, you know, complex decision uh, very often result in the same outcome. So the example here is uh, for leaders would be in the interviewing and hiring context, which is a great application of this. It's often said that when leaders are hiring, they go into an interview within the first 20 seconds, they know exactly whether they're going to hire this person or not. And hello, alarm bell should be going off. That's system one in full bias mode, right? That's that's our intuition making a snap judgment about this person and should be avoided. Now, of course, how most leaders counter that is to say, if they are aware of this bias and if they know not to make that snap judgment, they say, okay, let's ignore it. Let's ignore it totally and let me spend the rest of this interview in, in system two mode. 
which is which is great and I think an interesting approach. But if you look at what Kahneman writes on delayed intuition, what he says is that actually, you know, if you if you tell half the leaders to ignore their intuition and just go through the rigor of interviewing and ask these questions and do the whole analysis, they come to the decision. And then you ask the other half of leaders to just simply delay their intuition, meaning you don't ask them for a response one way or the other. But two days later, for instance, you ask them, what's your feeling about this candidate? They come to the same conclusion as they would if they'd gone through the rigor and the detailed analysis with the candidate. That says that system one, just as we've been saying, when you give it the benefit of a little bit of time and some experience and some processing to be able to avoid that snap judgment, intuition can still be very, very, very powerful and very useful. Yeah, that whole experiment with the set questions and the ranking and then the close your eyes moment at the end. For the benefit of our listeners, I just want to articulate what that experiment was. It was interviewing and the first part was set questions, specific questions related to the job, pure numerical ranking on the task. And the process of interviewing came up with better success outcomes than the go by your feeling and your sense of what the job needs and with is this person going to fit kind of interviewing by a significant amount. But it drove the interviewers crazy because they didn't feel like they were people in the process. The next iteration of the process was you go through those specific questions, putting those specific rankings down, and then you close your eyes, check in with your own gut intuition about this candidate, and you make a, on the same sort of one to five scale as you were marking all the other metrics, you put your gut instinct, your feeling, and looking at those metrics and tracking it, that gut feeling was as good at predicting success in the job as the metrics alone. So they ended up with a scale that was all those specifically articulated questions on the ranks, 50%. Interviewers gut instinct after having asked those questions, 50%. -hmm. Because the gut instinct of the interviewer had been educated by the experience of being in the room focused on the answers to the specific questions. It's so interesting to, to just see the far ranging implications of this beyond hiring. So we can trust our intuition to to a point as long as we give it some data. I do want to move into the last part here. There's a lot of discussion on optimism, on happiness, on memory. This rests on a very fundamental theory that Kahneman has, which is that we have a mind that experiences life and a mind that remembers life or keeps score. And the interaction between these two minds, as it were, contributes to how we remember things. The mind that experiences life, which is that day-to-day, very much in system one land, this is what the rational economic actor would be, you know, maximizing pleasure and profit. And the mind that remembers life and keeps score is looking at that long-term view of that experience. So there's a lot packed into this topic. One very interesting thing in this has to do with the fact that, you know, given that we try to maximize the remembering side rather than the experiencing side, we make decisions differently, including how we choose to spend our time, how we plan vacations. Kahneman talks a lot about how we, rather than focusing on the present experience, we focus a lot on how we want to remember this experience and make decisions according to that, which is really fascinating. I just want to open it up to you both, Kate and Alyssa, to to share a little bit of your thoughts on his work on happiness overall. I think the piece that 
I sort of want to bring into this, which is answering an easier question. (laughs) (laughs) Go for it. (laughs) We're nothing if not (laughs) self-aware. Which is given that memory and experience are not the same, if we want to maximize memory positivity, how should we do that? Because this one also came up as an issue with a client recently where their supervisor did not take advantage of what I would propose. And the end result is a very dissatisfied employee. The thing is that what maximizes positive memory, positive affect with a memory has to do with what were the emotions at the most intense time with an extra weighting on the bad emotions than the good emotions? And how did it end? How did it feel at the end? And how did it feel at the peak intensity are what color memories? So in this particular case, it was this client of mine had been working on a project for over a year. At the beginning of the project had expressed doubts about whether the project was worthwhile. And the project was eventually canceled because it was determined that the other team's possible solution had been quicker and faster. And that this particular version of the project Project should never have been attempted in the first place. So ending not well. Mm-hmm. It was also an incredibly frustrating process through the period. So the reason that my client is so upset about this project is partially that the peak intense experience was awful and it ended badly. Mm -hmm. And the ending was also bad. Yeah. It doesn't matter how long the project was. This is a bad project. What could the supervisor have done to have countered the emotional affect? Because the emotional affect is affecting my client's willingness to engage in the next project, uh, which is a big deal for an employer, right? Yeah. The two things that it struck me is one, there are a huge number of byproducts of this project that were created in the process of trying to solve the institutional and systemic problems that were why it was a pain in the ass to work on. Each of those solutions independently is going to be useful in other projects. If each time they'd had a success on that workaround, they had celebrated it, Mm -hmm. there would have been peak positive experiences if they'd celebrated enough of them. And honestly, there are so many successes around this project in terms of tools that they can use for other projects that it would have been easy to create peak positive experience to counter the peak negative experience. And then you have a postmortem where you pull that out and you highlight it so that it ends on the, here's what we learned. Here's how we're forward looking. Here's how we're going to use the things that came out of that project. Then you end on a high note and you would completely revolutionize the way that it gets remembered. I love the way you just articulated that. I think it's so important. And again, from a change management perspective, which I spent so much time working in, you find that, again, it's not their fault. It's their instinct that once something is accomplished, the first instinct is, okay, what's next? And one of the things that we would work with leaders on so much was celebrate the success, Mm -hmm. celebrate the milestone. Because if you just continuously move on to what's next, people aren't going to feel like they're making progress. They're going to feel like they're just kind of constantly down in the trenches without being able to pop their head up 
breathe, look around, celebrate before they go back down. So that language that you're using about really picking out the peak experiences, I really appreciate. The other thing I was thinking about was a grad school learning exercise that was the first time that a certain process was being put into place. And there were some major bumps. There was one particular evening, talk about peak negative experience, where there were emotions, there was crying, and then just things that made a lot of us really miserable. And yet, six, seven, ten years later, this is a group of people that got to know each other in a very vulnerable situation with opportunities to really support each other. And these are relationships that have endured, even though the the final product of that particular experience may not have been great, just the getting through it and the memory now of that. So I was thinking about this when he was talking about the vacations and he was saying, maybe you don't schedule one that is major hiking and a lot of exertion because that's not so pleasurable at the time. Mm-hmm. And yet the memory of reaching that peak, maybe the memory feeds into, in our case, these ongoing relationships and these ongoing things that we just can go back to and that we bonded over. So I'm sure that's true about the relationships. And I have a crackpot theory that I'm going to throw at this. <laughs> he talks about how we attribute value and how there was economic theory that was we attribute value purely as rational actors based on abstract observing from outside and that this in fact didn't account for all kinds of things that people do in the real world. And part of the work that he did was looking at change in value, change in position as something that we attribute value to. So two people who end up with $2 million in the bank pure rational actors should feel about the same about their lives. Mm -hmm. But we all know that if person A started with $5 million and person B started with $25,000, one of them feels a whole lot better with $2 million in the bank than the other. (laughs) If you lose $3 million, you hate it. Relative percentage and where you start from and are you going up or down qualitatively affects how we value things. One of the things about going through a period where you have this awful peak negative experience and you get through it, the change from pre-negative to the end, simply getting through it in contrast to this is an awful thing, it might actually be that the peak experience is the relief at getting it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so that might actually be the most emotionally intense piece. So that might actually color the memory even more than the negative piece. Yeah, it's this question of what's really peak because we can have the, the same literal experience, but some people are going to remember it as much more negative and someone else may remember it as much more positive because of that relativity and because of what for us was peak, whether that was net positive or net negative. As you say, if the relief of getting through it is actually emotionally more intense, then it's going to be a positive memory. You know, which is where hiking is such a great metaphor. I literally went on a hike two years ago where day two, getting to one of the peaks, I thought I was going to die. I was having so much trouble with the oxygen level. And that 
was horrible and it's not what I remember. What I remember is how I got through it, which is one step at a time. And I remember how great it felt to be at the past. I know how panicked I was intellectually, but I can't actually remember it effectively. Yeah. Yeah. The idea of relativity and the experiment specifically with putting your hand in really cold water mm-hmm. for 60 seconds or putting your hand in really cold water for 60 seconds and then 30 more seconds at a little bit of a warmer temperature and what you would choose. And that idea that you don't go back to the most painful. You think about the results. Right. Uh, you don't go back to the shorter one. And once again, this is a place of balance, right? Because if duration doesn't matter in the way that we think about the memories, we might, if we're structuring our lives or our projects for peak memory, if we know this, we might actually struggle for a hugely long time with the hope that it's going to feel so good at the end that it's going to make up for this, which may or may not end up actually being how we want to go through our lives. And this is where optimism and risk assessment comes into play. This is why people change so dramatically if they realize that they're going to die, they get a terminal illness diagnosis and they're like, doctor says I got two years left. I've been planning my life so that I can feel good when I die 20 years from now. I got to reassess everything because my time frame is different. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I love when Kahneman says for survival, you don't need to put a lot of weight on duration of experience. So 20 years versus two years matters a lot less than how it ends when it ends. And there are ethical implications uh, for this, of course, in public policy, certainly compliance related things that we want people to do. We're back to behavior change here a little bit. Do we make something ultimately more pleasurable or or less misery oriented and risk making it longer. That's certainly true of medical procedures. That may be true of certain criminal justice procedures. Do we stop worrying about duration so that it ends on a better note or has better peak experiences throughout or not? It has interesting ways of showing up as important for thinking about how we want to go about doing things in the areas where we don't have a quick feedback cycle. We're making real guesses about what the long-term outcome is going to be. We're having less information about where we're actually going to get to. And we're more likely to make all of the cognitive leaps, intuitively uneducated leaps that we can call illusions and fallacies that an uneducated system one does. Yeah, I think about what he talks about, about the attention that gets paid. And I think about cutting up the plastic six pack holders. And, you know, I wonder if that's kind of an illustration too of system one versus system two, where something just kind of captures the imagination and a concrete action they can take. What's the dent that we're actually making by that one gesture? On the other hand, if we are able to bring it down to one gesture that people can make and then continue to build on that, then we can help people take this abstract, complex, confusing thing and boil it down into a couple of actions. It's just a question of almost like the rare events. How do we have something last as opposed to this is what everyone's focusing on now and a year and a half 
from now, it'll be something else. The material on rare events is really interesting. He references Taleb's book, The Black Swan. And so people who are interested in rare events, The Black Swan is amazing. It's fantastic. Taleb's point is that we underestimate the impact that rare events have on our systems all the time and that we want to actually build our systems to be extremely resilient against negative rare events, including the ones that we can't predict. So both Kahneman and Taleb really interested in this. We've got to actually account for the unknown unknowns. Taleb's work talks about how to keep yourself open to positive upside rare events and decrease your exposure to negative rare events. And it really, really dovetails nicely with Kahneman's discussion of how much luck plays into our business successes and our personal successes and how much luck doesn't fit our storytelling. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So when we're putting together a story of how we got to where we are, we underestimate the role of luck all the time often incredibly dramatically. And the number that he uses that I want to throw out there, he's talking about the difference between companies, one company does well and one company does it not well. Um, what is the difference that a good CEO makes? And it's like 10% success. Yeah. And <laughs> so we live in a culture that thinks that a genius CEO is the be all and the end all of corporate success. And actually, if 50% of what happens in corporate success is luck, which is the argument Kahneman makes in that place, we're really being challenged if we take Kahneman seriously to rethink fundamentals of corporate hierarchy. Yeah, yeah. Fundamentals of corporate hierarchy. And you can get into national, international, governmental systems and things like that. It's a whole can of worms. But what you're saying here around corporate success and how little is actually determined by the CEO. I know Stephen Dubner, Steve Levitt have done things on the economic side of the world where they look at how much does who the leader of a country is determine some of our key metrics that we look at for success, whether it's GDP or other things. Um, the three to five other metrics they use. And they use multiple nations as examples. And whether it's a president or a prime minister, just actually how little role they have, because it's such a complex system, but then also the the role of luck and the role of things that we can't control. So that the luck piece is fascinating, because we prefer the version of the story, where it was this great leader who came in and made great change. And all of these things happened in this order and, and kind of that linear cause and effect that then leads us to and that's why we were successful is much more satisfying to us. It's coherent. Uh, there's a positive emotion. It, it just, it makes sense versus things like luck, which frankly don't make sense and they're not predictable and we don't have a clean way of pointing at them. That's hard for our brains. Yeah. And I think Kate, almost to go back to what you were talking about in terms of system one and system two and how you can learn stuff stuff being the technical term, that uh, that stays with you, that then educates that system one. I think that's where we still make the case for everyone developing themselves as a leader and showing these leadership skills and continuing to develop their skills so that they are better able to take advantage of the luck when it comes their way. And maybe even to recognize the luck when it comes their way. There's that 
aspect of who you are and what you bring when the luck and timing shows up in your favor. I would argue that all of these leadership qualities, ability to see clearly, questioning our assumptions about what's going on, not looking for answers to the easy questions, looking for what are really the questions, training ourselves against the bias of getting confirmation of what we already believe, but actually asking questions, which is another one of the kind of biases we haven't even touched on in this conversation that gets touched on in the book, that actually doing all that work on ourselves is preparing ourselves to take advantage of the opportunities when luck puts them in our path. So luck favors the prepared, not because luck shows up more often for the prepared, because luck is random, but the prepared are more able to take advantage of luck when it shows up on their doorstep. Yeah, that luck, it's not, success is not due to luck alone. Yeah, Yeah, it's success is that combination of luck and being able to take advantage of it. Which the prepared are, are better able to do. I love that. I love that. Okay, this has been absolutely amazing and and really fun. I do want to move into our little tradition here, which is how do we categorize this given our tree metaphor that we have been using, the roots, the trunk, the branches, where would each of you categorize this book and why? So I'm gonna put it in roots because it's ideas, understanding how we think as human beings because we are human beings and learning to compensate from our for our biological weaknesses is a really foundational thought I want everybody to take away. That big picture thought I think is foundational. The other thing about this book that is both really hard and really powerful is the section on statistics. If you don't have a foundation in statistics, you should have one. (laughs) And statistics is really badly taught in most of our schools. So if you're only going to read one thing about statistics, it might as well be this because the stories that he tells that make his point about how poorly we understand statistics intuitively are at least really interesting stories to read. So you might take the point and it might stick a little better because he tells really good stories. I think because it does talk about how we're wired, how we interact with the world and how we approach so many aspects of our lives and how we make decisions that I would categorize it in the roots. This is foundational. And yet there are ways to pick and choose a couple of things Mm -hmm. that just say, you know what, the next time we're hiring someone, I want to specifically look at that section and avoid the halo effect or other very specific things, phrasing as a branches book. Gosh, what more can I say? Because Alyssa kind of read my mind on this one. That's exactly how I feel. I would agree it's a roots book and the branches piece. I mean, there are such great little anecdotes in it that can come out and frankly are quite memorable. One thing to applaud in Kahneman's writing as dense and academic and complicated as it is, which which it is, (laughs) is that he puts his own theories into practice in this. He achieves what he achieves through storytelling. And I think more than anything for me, when I closed this book for the first time, as with anything, the things that I remembered were the stories, the experiments, every individual example he gave illustrating a bias or a fallacy or what have you. That's what stood out. So that's where I fall as well. Roots with with some branches and maybe even leaves. The thing that struck me as I was reading this is how, if all you want to do is grasp the fundamental ideas, how good the introduction 
introduction is. Yes. That the introduction does a really great job of laying out the foundational ideas. So for people who are interested in conceptually the ideas, but don't want to wrestle with a deep book because you don't have time, which I'm sure is common, just to get the introduction and then to sort of dip into the sections that seem like they might be relevant based on reading the introduction is a way of getting both the roots and the branches. Yep, that's great. Well, we've come to that part of the episode where we each share our thinkaways. If you had to sum up one thinkaway we can give our listeners, what would that be? Intuition is amazing and not trustworthy 100%. (laughs) So honor your intuition, accept your intuition, and question how applicable it is right now in this situation. Love it. I think Wiziati is a great think away for me and the idea that that if you're if you're kind of going by that of what you see is all there is, then you need to be wary of the assumptions that come with it, the tendency to ignore the complexity and to to be aware of that and say, you know, what are some of the other sides to this story? What isn't there that I may be ignoring? So I think my so my think away is to recognize how prevalent that acronym is in my life and to recognize opportunities to expand past what you see is all there is. Mm-hmm. My think away personally has to do with the element of surprise. So in the introduction, Kahneman tells us the stories about the past are so good that they create the illusion that life is understandable and that we can predict the future. That stood out for me. It's so, so powerful. And where the element of surprise comes in is that because we love the stories of the past so much, we trace back to all the errors that were made after an event happens and we draw a pattern. When we reconstruct, we don't always reconstruct correctly, including what we believed at the time. We minimize the surprise. We make it seem inevitable because that makes for a better story. Uh, but what I my think away and what I would challenge our listeners to do is consider the element of surprise, consider the element of unpredictability and luck. What would it be like if we were to live our lives looking back at the past and what's happened, keeping in mind surprise and unpredictability and chaos play such a bigger role. So I would just invite listeners to consider that. And that's about it. This was Leadership Arts Review. If you enjoy the Leadership Arts Review podcast, please leave us a review wherever you find your podcasts. You can find more information and additional resources at podcast.leadershipartsreview.com and continue the conversation in the Leadership Arts Review Facebook group or on Twitter at leadership underscore arts. Leadership Arts Review is a 4 Impala production. Music adapted by 4 Impala from Nathaniel Wyvern's Sanctuary of the Sky Gods under license.